If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to study the whole chapter this evening. It's been a couple weeks since we were in this book of the Bible, but last time we were together, there was the gathering of the people of Israel there at Gilgal. And it was at Gilgal that Samuel had the casting of lots for the sake of recognizing who it is that would be king. Now, surely it's the case, as you might recall, uh, that the Lord had already told Samuel who it would be, uh, that it would be this young man, uh, Saul, who was coming, a man of Benjamin, but who was hunting for his father's donkeys, and uh, how uh, not only had Samuel been told, but how he had then recounted that to Saul and sent him on something of a tour uh, where signs were given to him and to the people of Israel regarding the hand of the Lord being upon him for the rule of the people of Israel. But you may remember that in chapter 10, sort of an interesting thing happened. Well, we saw not only the people gather, not only lots be taken, but the cowardly heart of Saul prevail. What did he do when his name was called? He was hiding among the baggage like a little kid, afraid to do the thing that he's been called to do. Nonetheless, they took him, they put him in the midst of the people, and the biblical text says that he was taller than all the people of Israel from the shoulders up. We've already been told that he's kingly in appearance, he's handsome, he looks better than all the rest of his brothers. And the people looked at him, and what did they say? Well, they said in verse 24 of chapter 10, Long live the king, words that were just spoken only a few days ago in the United Kingdom. And so when we come to chapter 11, we have the account of the first act of the king, who is Saul. And we also have the subsequent account of the renewal of the kingdom whenever the people publicly proclaimed that they would submit to him. So let's read 1 Samuel chapter 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up to and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite that we might send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are all weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel so shall it be done to his oxen. 
Then the fear of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And he mustered them at Betsech. The people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And he said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time that the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there, were, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is God's word. Let us pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, help us to gain benefit from your word, O oh Lord, that we would continue and hold fastly to this wonderful truth that Every word of scripture is breathed out by you, O Lord, that it is profitable for each of us, O Lord, for the benefit of our souls, O Lord, the maturing of our hearts, O Father, for the defeat of sin, O Lord, we pray that this evening you would teach us, O Lord, the culture that ought to be fashioned after your righteous decrees and the things that you have done in providence to your people. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Nobody trusts, respects, or fears an untested leader. That's true in our day, and this is true in the day of King Saul. And it's one of those things that has sort of a reflective, uh, I would say, component. Uh, people would say that, um, that power loves a vacuum. If there's something that... Uh, has happened in the world, a leader has gone by the wayside and there's left no one at the top, what happens? Well, people scramble uh, to take over. And so there's some of both of those two things. You've got this new figure, this leader, a king, Saul, and he's a donkey farmer and an oxen driver and not a very impressive person in his activity, even though he is in his looks. Right, And this is a new kingdom, and it's a kingdom that, that does still have one judge, but he's old, and he's really old. He's so old that, the, that the, uh, the, the work of the judges and the office that the judges maintained has fallen by the wayside, and so there are enemies on every side. On one side, you've got the Philistines that we're going to see later in the life of Saul, and now we encounter the Ammonites. And it's a test. And it's a hard test. But it's one that ultimately God gave to Saul and to the people of Israel for the opportunity 
of this new king to put past divisions to bed and to assure Israel of the goodness of God and his being called as king over them. And when you come to a passage like this, as we've just read it, it just seems like, well, basic history. And if you go and you take and try to squeeze the verses too much, what are you going to get out? You're going to get the same sort of juice that's already pretty evident. The glass is going to taste like the fruit. Um, But this evening, I want to pull from this five principles that I think we can derive directly from the passage of Scripture and that have immediate application for our, our day. And some of you might be thinking, oh, great. Um, our pastor who can take three points and make it into a 50-minute sermon, he's got five and it's the evening and I'm quite tired. But I promise these are principles and we're going to work through them with a good pace and I think receive some benefit from that. The first principle is that there is real evil in the world, verses 1 through 4. There is real evil in the world. Verses 5 and 6 There is a time for godly anger. There is a time for godly anger. Verse 7, there is a use for heavy-handed leadership. There is a use for heavy-handed leadership. Verses 8 through 11, there is a need for just war. There is a need for just war. And then in verses 12 through 15, There is equity in civil mercy. There is equity in civil mercy. So there are five there is statements for you this evening if you're taking notes. Long live the king. Long live the king. Just yesterday I got to watch videos of this as the first king in my lifetime that I was even remotely aware of was sworn into his office over his people. And this will be the new king whose name we have yet to hear what he will decide to take. But nonetheless, it is uh, Prince Charles who is presently reigning as king. And so much so is the same with the passage of Scripture. We are on the heels of chapter 10 and just a few verses removed from long live the king of verse 24. It's so fresh that Samuel hasn't gotten his head around the thing that he's been called to. He's been sent away with mighty men back to Gibeah. At least that's where he decided to go. He's not living in a castle or in a palace or in a fortress or in anything like that. In fact, he's, well, not making good use of those who are under him. It's Saul out driving oxen. It's a strange story. But you see, it's right there at the hinge. We've got a new king. He's fresh, and he's on the scene. And like I mentioned a moment ago, nobody trusts, respects, or fears an untested leader, and here's the test. Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged a village, a town if you really want to call it that, but if you look at it in the ancient record, it's kind of small, Jabesh-Gilead. And you may know nothing about Jabesh-Gilead, or if you're a biblical scholar and you recall the end of the book of Judges, we're going to come around to that in a minute. There's some interesting history, some strange, some hard history regarding Jabesh Gilead and specifically Gibeah and the people of Benjamin. And Nahash the Ammonite comes against these people. He besieges the city. Maybe they have walls. It makes good sense. Why would you besiege something that doesn't have walls? We're not told. Um, But nonetheless, 
he puts the people within Jabesh Gilead into a desperate circumstance. And he displays in his actions toward them and his response to them a heart of true, significant, horrific evil. The likes of which our modern world has seen and is presently even seeing in the modern day. The people of Jabesh come out and they say to Nahash, the Ammonite, make a treaty or a covenant with us. Specifically what they ask. Cut a covenant, make a binding agreement with us and we will serve you. And so there's the the real depth of it. And one commentator said this displays the, the spiritual waywardness of these people. Because here they are, willfully and in terror, standing before this Ammonite Warlord. He's not a prince and he doesn't have a kingdom. Uh, He's something of a bully and he's got a pack of ravenous dogs from his people and they're with him as it were. And they're trembling before him. Oh, but please, please let us be your slaves. That's the offer. Please don't kill us. Just do anything. Don't starve us to death. Just let us be your slaves. That's the picture. That's the language offered up. Take us in chains. Do with us what you will. But it's the response of this Ammonite that shows the depth of his depravity, the wickedness of his soul. It's as if he says to the people, well, that sounds like a great idea. Let's make an agreement. It'll be on this condition that I don't kill you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. We're going to come back to that in just a moment, but I want you to understand who the Ammonites are. Do you remember in biblical history who the Ammonites are? Well, of course, you might know the name Lot, right? And his connection to his uncle, Abraham, who had many sons, who yet he was not a son of, and how Lot had an incestuous relationship with his daughters. And it's a terrible, scandalous, stomach-turning scene of the Old Testament. Well, the Ammonites are the offspring of that terrible incestuous affair, but they are, if you understand the sense, they're, they're really cousins. They're, they really are the hillbilly, inbred cousins of the Israelites. Uh, these are not folks you really want to, to go up against, but this is the circumstance. People who were begun in ungodliness and who continued in their waywardness. These are not Israelites. They're not worshiping the true God of Israel. They are a people who began in sin and who were continuing in sin. But here's his threat, his condition. Let's look at that. I'll make a covenant with you, but I want to gouge out all your right eyes. And whenever I saw this in the English text, I always do my translation, but I went and looked back at it. I didn't catch this going through the first time, or at least it just didn't jump out. And I looked at the Hebrew word, and I'm like, wonder, does it really say gouge out your eyes? And Hebrew has a way of turning the phrase. It always tells you way more. Um, It's like a realist painter. If the cat's got whiskers, he's going to paint it. And that's how the Hebrew language is. Um, This is a very explicit word. And it literally in the Hebrew is to go and to hollow out the round of your eye. To leave the socket just completely open. To leave a visible mark. Right? As commentators speak about this, they have lots of guesses. But the passage of Scripture tells you at least the first insult and the use thereof, right? What is it? To bring disgrace on all Israel. 
that there's a mark laid in their flesh, right on their face, right where everybody's going to look, of the attack on Jabesh Gilead, specifically the triumph of the Ammonites over who? The Israelites, the people of Israel. This new kingdom, the kids on the block. Yeah, there are cousins, but really, our dad's tougher. We're the tougher branch. We're the stronger people. And it's an offered insult. But the commentators, they think about this. What's at the bottom of it? Well, it's something that's a little bit darker. Because he's willing to take the people into subjugation, but it's a subjugation to render them helpless. In ancient warfare, as commentators think about this, there's this presumption, and it's a common thing in the ancient text, that left-handed people didn't stay left-handed very long in the ancient world. It was trained out of young boys, young girls, certainly out of soldiers. Warfare was fought with the right hand. A shield was held with the left. A staff uh, was held with the right. Even if you're going to shoot a bow, you're going to extend the bow with the left, draw the string with the right to loose the arrow after you've looked down it with the right eye. It is to render a people militarily helpless. This is a bigger picture. But under that, what is it? It is a statement of a heart that does not value their humanity. This is a dehumanization of these people. It's almost as if he is making sure that they must rely on him entirely. And it makes sense. If you're going to subjugate a people, if you're going to treat them like cattle, you have to make sure they can't revolt. And this is his hand against them. But it's not just any sort of thing. I mean, in the ancient text, how many times do you read about people getting their eyes gouged out like this? It's not common. It's not a necessary piece. And it's the evidence of a heart that is wicked in its essence. It's to say that they should be dehumanized and stripped from the possibility of their own improvement. To be treated as a commodity, to be marked so that people will look upon their face even as upon the arms of others who have been treated as subhuman and thought less of, and relegated to something completely a mark of shame. And it's a significant thing. And we have to see this and look at this passage of Scripture and back away from it and say, this teaches that there is real evil in the world. Nahash had no ground to do this sort of thing, nothing. These are even his kinsmen. This is the evidence of the reality of the evil heart of humanity and specifically somebody that is leaning into the evil that he is inclined toward already. And you and I live in a world that want to tell us, like I said this morning, that up is down, left is right, good is evil, all sorts of things. Men are women, hot is cold, it doesn't matter. We want to take in obscure distinctions and that's the popular thing in the world because when people haven't the capacity to come against or even the heart to fight against that which is wrong, they would rather say there's nothing wrong at all. Nothing to see here. Leave it alone. But whenever people look away from evil and don't speak out and act out toward it, What does evil do? It hurts people. It hurts people. There's real evil in the world. Undeniably, indisputable evil in the world. Genocide is evil. Abortion is evil. And the people who perpetrate those things are evil. It's not just the acts that they do, but they themselves are the place from which all of those things flow. It's 
the necessary result of a heart that hates God and hates His image bearers. Now that's a stark statement. But there is real evil in the world and Saul encountered it as the first test of his rule as king. I'll pluck your eyes out. I I, I love the response of the Israelites. They offered to Nahash, hey, we'll be your servants. They hear, yeah, but let me gouge your eyes out first. And the the elders of Jabesh Gilead said, ah, hang on a second. (laughs) Give us seven days to see if we can get anybody here to wipe you guys off the face of the planet. Let's see if we can get some salvation here. Give us seven days. And then if we have nobody in seven days, just do with us whatever you want to. And do you see Nahash's proud heart? He simply says, yeah, fine, go for it. That's a bizarre thing. You besieged a city and you're going to let them send out for aid? This is him saying a very loud statement straight to Saul and to the kingdom of Israel. You don't have anything I'm afraid of. You're king. He's nobody. You don't have an army. You're not a kingdom. Your king's out with a bunch of oxes and he's plowing the dirt. He's not a king, at least not like the nations, even though that's what the people wanted. He's just not worried about them. And so he disrespects them, even in allowing them to send for help. We go on and we read in verses 4 through 6 that there is a time for righteous anger. There is a time for righteous anger. And so as you look, the message goes forward, right? And we're told that whenever the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, the town where he lived, they reported it to the, the matter to the ears of the people, and that all the people wept aloud. When you look at the passage, you know the sense is it's like a roar, right? They, they hear the news, and it's overwhelming. And there's some history that you need to have in your mind here, some understanding, because it's you know Jabesh Gilead and the people of Gibeah. Like I mentioned earlier, they've got they've got some history. It's a dark history, and if you take your Bibles and turn. If you want to, I'm not going to read it to you. I just want to point you to it, really. At the ending of Judges, uh, chapters 19, 20, 21, we have the account of a war, a civil war, between Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. So that's all the other tribes against Benjamin and the Benjaminites. And there's a reason why this happened. There was a Levite, of course. A Levite's not a Benjaminite. He's of a different tribe. He's of the priestly line. And you read in Judges 19 that he came with his concubine, his unmarried companion of the opposite sex, to this town, Gibeah, and Benjamin. And he stayed with a family there. And in the night, you have this great group of men from Gibeah, uh, these men who were called sons of Belial, worthless fellows, just like the ones that protested the appointment of Saul in the last chapter. These guys don't protest. What do they do? They come beating on the doors and they say, give us the Levite. Uh, They want to violate him. And you hear the echoes of Sodom and Gomorrah, don't you? This wickedness in the heart of man. And what does the Levite do? Well, 
he offers to these wicked men who want to attack him physically. He says, well, here, don't take me. I'd take my concubine. Furthermore, the host of the house has a virgin daughter. Take her too. Take these two girls. Oh, it's profound wickedness. And what do the men do? They, they look, they say, eh, just the concubine. She's one of the local girls, as it were. Well, they assaulted her. The next morning, she's on the doorstep. She's lifeless, motionless. The text doesn't tell us that she died, but the result is that the Levite takes her body, lifts it, and places it upon his beast of burden, takes her, and then does this grisly thing. He divides her into 12 pieces and sends her pieces throughout all the tribes of Israel to announce this horrible insult and this crime done against him and against this woman. And if you sit back and you say, man, that is just really horrible and intense and really hard to hear and hard to read, yes, it is. And all the people of Israel thought the exact same thing. And so what happens? God commands all of Israel to wage a civil war against who? The men of Gibeah and the whole of the tribe of Benjamin. And so it occurs. And it's not a good war. It's an ugly war. And lots of people die. It's, it's a place where in the history of the people of Israel, a self-imposed slaughter was had. And at the close of the war, the people of Israel gathered at Mizpah, and they themselves decided that they would not give their daughters over to the Benjaminites, and specifically not to the Gibeonites, the people of Gibeah. Except for this one village. This one village that refused to come against the Benjaminites, the people of Jabesh Gilead. And they did give daughters, and they did establish a relationship, and they didn't and refused to cut off the people of Benjamin and to make sure that they would be, as it were, divorced from the family of the household of faith. You see, there's context. It helps to know your Bible here. And so whenever the voice comes of the messenger to Gibeah and on the streets is heard, there is this wicked man, Nahash, and he's saying he wants to gouge out all the right eyes of all the men in the whole city. These people cry out because it's grandpa and uncle and family members and it's their family and they're being held hostage and they're shouting and they're crying because the Benjaminites are intermarried with the people of Jabesh Gilead. And so there's Saul. And he's in the field. And he's been driving oxen. Not doing what kings normally do. He says, what's going on? Why are all the people shouting? And when the news reached his ears, we were told in the passage of Scripture that the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul in English, weighed heavy, pressed him, forced him, inspired him to a godly anger. That's the picture. I mean, for the English reader we read, rushed upon, that makes almost no sense. You might rush to the store, but you don't rush upon somebody. But I do have this picture. And I'll put it in terms of maybe like rugby or American football, because I know everybody's a little bit sports confused in our church. The guy that's got the ball, right? He's in danger. And the guy who wants to stop him from scoring a point, what does he do? He rushes upon him with all the strength of his body and crushes him. There's some sense of that at least. He's 
crushed under the relentless weight of the hand of God to righteous anger. He can't resist the anger he feels, the injustice, the wickedness of what he's heard. This is something that the most wicked amongst his neighbors wouldn't do, but now there's this. And it's against these people. And he's righteously angry. And why do I make a point out of this? Why is this a principle? It's because today people want you to believe there's no good reason for anger, ever. And in general, I tell you that being cut off in traffic is not righteous anger. It may feel righteous. Um, Being cut in line, I don't know, I don't have a whole lot of illustrations for this one. (laughs) Uh, For my boys... Uh, having the cookie stolen one from another, that's not righteous anger. But there is occasion for righteous anger. There is occasion for righteous anger. Whenever people who are defenseless are attacked, there is occasion for righteous anger. When an unreasonable hand is raised against people for the sake of their humanity being buffeted and removed, there is reason for righteous anger. Anger, and here, the anger in the heart of Saul that grips him. It's a thing that's done by God, and it's according to his office as king. Righteous rulers ought to understand how to be righteously angry, and really, the people of God ought to be able to simply look at atrocities and say the same. It's not that this is just sad. I'm overwhelmed with a holy rage. Look at the slaughters that happened at Bucha only recently. The things that we even see in our own day and age. We should be angry. There should be speech. There should be action. And there is time for both. And it needs to be happening upon the earth. And if not, innocent people will be harmed. Verse 7, there is use for heavy-handed Leadership. Just a moment ago, I told you about the response of the Levite, um, how when he found this young woman dead after being attacked by this group of men, what did he do? He took her body and divided it into parts and then sent it throughout Israel to announce uh, this horrible crime that had happened. And there's an echo of this. And I wonder whenever we read the passage, whenever Saul... uh, is angry, and in verse 7, he takes a yoke of oxen, two oxen, and cuts them into pieces and sends their pieces throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, and he, he threatens them. <laughs> uh, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And whenever I was reading through this the first time at the beginning of the week, I was, you know, I was expecting, so shall it be done to him. <laughs> uh, but no, it's his oxen, and I think there's a lot of restraint there. Uh, Samuel or Saul could have said, well, whatever he wanted to say. But nonetheless, this is, this is a heavy statement. And I think it's on the back of that context. And I think there's this cultural memory. This isn't but just, you know, 20 years removed uh, from the time of the Civil War, maybe 30 or 40 years if we're really generous with the timeline. Uh, people remember that, you know, the people of Jabesh Gilead, they didn't show up at Mizpah. They didn't say that they wouldn't give their daughters over to these wicked men in Gibeah. They didn't wage war against the Benjaminites. And, well, they're sort of, you know, in that club with those unmentionable people, the Benjaminites. Why would we come to their defense? 
And Saul says, well, if you're remembering that, remember this. If you don't do what I'm telling you, I'm going to erase your capacity to maintain the economic well-being of your household. Now, that's a pretty heavy threat, really. It's not like saying, I'm going to come and chop you into pieces, but he's saying, I'm going to chop your cows into pieces, and you're not going to be able to plow, and if you can't plow, you're not going to eat. That's huge. It's significant. It's not to be overlooked. This threat against the oxen is, well, it's directly in the face of that former woe, that horrible thing that was in the history of the people of Israel and between them and the people of Benjamin. And so I mentioned in the introduction of the passage that this this trial, it's an opportunity for him to right previous wrongs and for him to say, I'm your king and we're going to get past this and we're going to come together as one people and we're going to stand for our God and for his children. That's heavy leadership. Pretty sure if I sent out an email in the church that said, you know, everybody get to evening service or your dog, I'm going to come and I'm going to chop him up. Wouldn't go well. Your cats, they're, they're on notice. Show up or, or uh, your feline friend's going to get it. It wouldn't go well. Heavy-handed leadership. Uh, in, in the day in which we le- uh, live in, uh, any sort of forward leadership that asserts any authority, even nowhere near something like this, It's not well received. And as leaders, when we take leadership training and and just in the practicality of life, uh, (laughs) even just saying, I think this is how we ought to go or I think this is the way we ought to do this can be seen as dictatorial leadership. Now, there is dictatorial leadership. It's not always the case. But in our day, even forward leadership is recoiled against and called heavy-handed or too much. Is there ever a day for it? People don't like it. We don't like it. I think so. To restrain us from our sins. I think, I think there is some permissibility. Not the abuse of leadership or, or the effect of power for the sake of gain, but for the good of the people, like a father would have a heavy hand toward a child running into their own danger. So dad say, you just really ought to stop. I think you ought to figure out on your own. Your hand doesn't need to be in the bowl of boiling water. You know, son, I know that you really want to run into the road, but it's truly up to you. Do you want the tires? I mean, if you do, it's okay. You do you. No, you don't. You grab the arm and you pull him to yourself. You shout at him and the neighbors think you've gone insane. Stop! And the whole world looks at you as a crazy parent. There is a time for heavy-handed leadership. And for Saul, this is such a moment. He's saying, you must come to us. Put everything away. What you've had is in the past. We've dealt with it. It's over. And together we need to come for the sake of the benefit of our brothers. You have to get over it, is what he's saying. Notice there's no account of him having to go and cut up any cows. We could simply understand this. They took the note, they enjoyed the steak dinner, and they moved on. It was effective. That's the point that I'm getting to. It's effective. Now, please do not hear me or misunderstand me to say that leaders ought to say, if I've said it, you do it or else. Not at all. But there is a time, there is a place for leadership to be assertive. And it's the time where we ourselves desperately might need it. Next in the passage of Scripture, I want you to see that there is need for just war. 
There is a need for just war. Because the very next thing that we read is what? Well, after verse 7, we come to verse 8, uh, that the people came out as one man. They all gathered. Excuse me, that's verse 7. Uh, that the, the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. In verse 8, then he mustered them at Betsech. The people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. You see, there's this assemblage. They're not just gathered. It's not just a congregation. No, 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 no. They're mustered as soldiers. They're prepared. They're armed for battle. Uh, They're divided up into leadership formats, however they wanted to do that in the ancient time. We're not told specifically uh, how it was all divided, but nonetheless, they're prepared for war. They're, They're an army gathered, ready to wage what I think is a just war. And we read that they sent message, your deliverance is at hand, and that the men of Jabesh-Gilead respond to Nahash, who obviously doesn't see the trap that he's in, and that whenever, the verse 11, whenever he put them into three companies, that they came into the midst of the camp early in the morning and struck down the Ammonites. He's effective. There is a war waged against probably sleeping people in a camp outside of a city that they're besieging for who knows how long, at least seven days. Um, And he wins. We're told that they fell upon them, and what? And not two were left together, uh, that he struck them until the heat of the day, and that the survivors scattered. Uh, It's significant, and you know, we live in a day and an age that uh, loves pacifism. And there is a time and a day where godly turning of the other cheek is a necessary reality. However, the thing that I want to encourage you is the, that the biblical ethic of turning the other cheek hasn't a relationship to simply saying, sorry, I'm a pacifist. I don't have a concern for justice to be done, but rather a statement of faith that God will bring justice in the day of his appointment, on judgment day. That's not what we have here. We have people who live in a real city who are probably short on water and short on food and they have a real enemy outside the gates that wants to come and at least just pluck the eyes out of all the guys in there, maybe a whole lot worse, probably very much worse. And he wants to dehumanize the defenseless people and he's mocked the whole of the people of Israel, you see, his de- his design is exploitation for gain. That's most likely the whole picture. Whenever Saul came and fell upon them, it was by the leading of the Lord, and it was a just war. They were defenseless. And he came and he freed these people. A lot of time uh, in our modern day, whenever people go against the idea of a just war, Uh, It is on the back of a number of different things, Uh, but I want to say at least this. More often than not, it's abject terror at the idea of violence. People are afraid of it. I want to say at the very heart of the idea of just war is a just God, that you have a God who reigns over all and that there is right and that there is wrong, and that uh, he is the one who not only uh, upholds justice, um, but designs that the defenseless should be defended by those who have capacity to defend. 
And if there is a God who judges the hearts of men, that those who have power and that don't extend that power for the benefit and the defense of the defenseless, then what are they but to be blamed for those who have been molested and abused and exploited? There's a reason for just war. And it begins in the just heart of the God of heaven. We live in an age that needs to have a very, very clear picture of this. We may find ourselves even closer to an already close, unjust war. And then lastly in the passage, uh, there is an equitable use of civil mercy. Saul and the armies of Israel and Benjamin and Judah have all come together and they've won the day. And in verse 12, they back away as it were. And then the people, amped up on war, blood on their swords, say to Samuel, the judge, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? You see, they're very impressed by the tall, handsome, and now victorious king who's been tested, and they're saying, where are his other enemies? We'll take you all out. They remember those worthless fellows, the sons of Belial of chapter 10, verse 27. How can this man save us? They despised him and brought him no present. You see, they're concerned. Hey, do we have other enemies? Are there enemies not just outside, but within the camp? And this is a big issue. It's a big question. And, you know, there's a sense in which, you know, we might read this and we go, yeah, you know, you're already putting down civil issues. Maybe you just keep on rolling. Make sure we don't have this again. But... There is a different design, I think a higher design. You know, if you close out the chapter uh, 10 and you read the very last words of it, Saul's response to the worthless fellows, he held his peace even though they didn't honor him. You see some maturity growing in the heart of this man who would rule. And in verse 13, we see this yet again. He says, not a man shall be put to death this day For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Why won't he put to death these enemies within the camp? Because of the Lord. It's not because he's just benevolent. Maybe he is. It's also not just because he has national pride or love for the people or fears the loss of any person. Rather, he has the fear of the Lord. Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. He's saving us, not killing us. And there is this civil mercy extended. This is the death sentence lifted. The mob wants death. They want blood. He says no. Up until this point, these are traitorous men. Dangerous, and especially in a new kingdom. And you go on and you read the response of this equitable, this, this good, this profitable use of mercy. Well, we read that the people that were a little bit divided, they united. Verse 14, Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal. Again, that place where the king was announced. And there renew the kingdom. What's this about? We keep on reading. We read that all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. Didn't we do that in chapter 10? Hey, hey, are we just going back over the same ground here? Um, 
And then they go on and they sacrifice peace offerings and they rejoice greatly. Well, it, you know, we return to that same principle. No one respects an untested leader. And now he's tested. He's not only the victorious Saul, but he's also the Saul who fears the Lord and the merciful leader of the people of Israel. And he may have been announced over the people by lot taken and by the providence of the Lord, but now in the hearts of the people, they're coming. And Samuel says, hey, you've got all that zeal. Yes, you know those men who were worthless, who judged Saul wrongly. Uh, Well, here's your opportunity for restoration and a turned heart and the people to gather together and to bow a knee to the king that the Lord has appointed. The man who showed you mercy, why don't you bow and simply say, he is my king, long live the king. The king not only in letter, but in the hearts of the people of his kingdom. Why do I bring this up? And it's because today civil mercy is often besmirched because it is often abused. There's not a sense, I think, in the kingdoms and republics and countries that occupy the modern world of a good use, there are some things that ought to be persecuted to the nth nth letter of justice. You don't put murderers back on the street. But if a man's heart may be turned, it is a good use of civil mercy to endeavor to turn it. Right? What do we hear? Just a... In the past week, we hear about a young woman who lost her life to a guy that had been convicted several times. He raped her and killed her and left her. A mother, a member of Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And we cry out and we say, that man didn't deserve civil mercy. It was a misuse. But friends, it's not that there is no use for civil mercy. Mercy is a gospel principle and A good king and a good ruler would only be mirroring the king of heaven who is full of grace and who is full of mercy. Who doesn't give us what we deserve, but gives us precisely the things we don't deserve that we might repent. May the Lord never allow us to lose sight of that. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures, for the ancient account of your hand in the midst of your people. Father, we do pray that you would help us to see these things truthfully and rightly. Lord, that we would judge our world by your word. Lord, that we would have our own hearts revealed through the testimony of the scriptures. Lord, I do pray that you would help those who are in rule to rule rightly. Father, that they would make good decisions. Father, that they would rule the people not just in letter but in the heart. Father, but I pray that their hearts would be ruled by a fear for you and a fear of you. Oh, Lord, that they'd be people directed by your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us as Christians to make clear distinctions. Oh, Lord, to know that there is that which is civil and that that which is spiritual. Oh, Father, and that the church isn't to be a slave nor a servant to the state nor the state to the church. Rather, that the church is the subject of Jesus Christ, the alone head of the church, who reigns forever over all. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray that you'd give us strength. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.